welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to Madden the Family, the podcast of Madden America's Parent Resources section. I'm Miranda Spencer. Today, we're going to discuss dealing with adolescent anxiety, something the news media and our own eyes tell us so many young people these days are struggling with. With us is Jody Amen. Jody Amen, LCSW, is a psychotherapist and coach who has more than 20 years of experience working with children, their parents, and helpers. A graduate of Columbia University School of Social Work, she has studied and taught narrative therapy around the globe and speaks internationally to conferences, schools, and universities. She is also trained in Ayurveda, mindfulness, yoga, energy healing, and herbalism, among other modalities. A TEDx speaker and YouTuber, Jody is also a best-selling author. Her books include You Won, Anxiety Zero, and most recently, Anxiety, I Am So Done With You, A Teen's Guide to Ditching Toxic Stress and Hardwiring Your Brain for Happiness, which was published on July 7 by Skyhorse Publishing. Jody has her private practice in Rochester, New York, and is a mom of teens. Welcome. Thank you. So uh, first, a bit about you. Um, You've shared how you developed an intense problem with anxiety and panic at a young age. What happened? And briefly, how did you eventually cure yourself? Well, I think when when I was five years old, I learned about the presidents. It was February. It was President's Day. And I was at a father-daughter event. And, you know, it was a craft activity. I mean, it was so benign, right? But on the way home, I started to think, like... I never see those guys around anymore. So I asked my father, I said, where are the presidents now, daddy? And his neck got really long and his face got really pale. And he said, they're dead. And I didn't know what that was, but he tried to explain it. Probably didn't do a great job, but how do you explain it to a five-year-old? And I realized like anything I had secure in my life could be taken away. And I could be taken away. And so I was introduced to this idea that life was dual and there was nothing, you know, nothing secure. And I I started to have panic attacks about that, about losing somebody or dying. And um, they lasted for almost 20 years. Wow. Yeah. On and off in my life, I really struggled. I mean, it, it wasn't everyday thing, but there was episodes where it was really bad for a little while and then it would go away a little bit for a couple months or something. And then it would come back and I'd have like another episode. Wow. I, I recognize that from myself because I went through the same thing when I was a teenager. Yeah. Teenage time is a really hard time to be struggling with anxiety, but it's so, so common. Right, right. I'm, I'm starting to really learn that now. So how did you eventually, um, you figured out yourself how to get over it? And um, I want to just ask you that. So leading into how you actually work with teens with anxiety in your practice. So what did you do? And how did that lead you to the narrative therapy approach that you take today? Yeah, so, you know, I think that I was you know, I was really, so I just decided I, one day, well, I was already a social worker. So I was already working with people in therapy and I was at a group meeting and, you know, with other staff and we were talking about our hardest cases to try to get ideas from the psychiatrist and how to treat them. And I started to notice that when people talked about their clients, I felt like I was worse than their clients. 
And I was like, these are our hardest clients. I'm supposed to be helping them. And I feel like I'm worse. I feel more out of control than they're even describing. And part of that's like, you know, your anxiety feels worse than everybody else's. But also like just this realization that I, I can't do this anymore. You know, that, that's a feeling you get when you have anxiety, like I can't do this anymore. And so I ran out of that meeting because I was so panicky. And when I was pulling out of my parking spot, I looked at my face in the mirror and I realized that my face was really pale and my neck was really long. And that was familiar. You know, that was my father's face when he had anxiety. And so I started to realize that I learned it. Uh And if I learned anxiety, then I could unlearn it. So I made the commitment that day to unlearn it. And I tried everything, everything that's out there. And and I know a lot of people who have anxiety, they've tried a lot of different things. I've been there. I've tried them all too. And then I I really ended up realizing there's these six steps. You know, I kind of developed these six steps. And as a therapist, as a family therapist working with all ages, I've used these same six steps with my clients and they work in a repeatable way. To backtrack a little on the concept of anxiety, when you talk about the word anxiety, you don't mean a label from the diagnostic manual, but more a phenomenon that we're familiar with, which you call the leftover fear response when you're not actually in danger. Um, Can you explain that a little? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've seen a lot of people be really confused at like, what's normal anxiety? What's anxiety disorder? How do you know you have a problem? Um, how do you know it's too much? Am I just a regular warrior? You know, people are really distracted with this idea. Like, am I suffering enough to get help or or whatever? I mean, it's, you know, we're very distracted with what is this anxiety? It's so much mystery around it. And sometimes we think, well, some of it's good. Like anxiety wants you to think that it's protecting you in some way. And so we're trying to really decide like what is okay and what's not okay. And so I decided to come out with a definition that would really solve that for everybody and a definition that is definitively not helpful. Because if you think anxiety is a little bit helpful in any way possible, you're not going to want to get rid of it. And I wanted to help people get rid of it. You know, when you have that discrepancy and not knowing if you should keep it or get rid of it, you keep it and and then then you stay suffering. And so I started to use this definition of anxiety as the leftover fear response when you're not in physical danger so that we understood that the fear response is helpful sometimes. Like sometimes you're in danger and you need that to survive. I mean, it's a really amazing adaption of our body to have a fear response and have the adrenaline go off if we needed it. And people have done superhuman things during that. Um, But 98% of the time it goes off and we don't need it. And then it could just go away. If we weren't afraid, if we realized we were safe, it would just go away. But what's happening is that we feel the stress and anxiety and we think there's something wrong, even though we see that we're not in danger at all. And so we perpetuate that the adrenaline release and we perpetuate that. Then we become even more helpless. It kind of feeds itself. So that's anxiety. It's like, you don't need it at all. And it's helpful for people to understand if they don't need it at all, they can let it go. Right. You do need your fear response, but this is like something that's really not serving anyone. Yes. So you, you wrote that um, seeing anxiety as something constructed outside of you rather than a chronic mental illness that's inside of you is very important in healing from it. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So 
you know, when we think it, this is our problems, we kind of take them into our identity. You know, we think it's like us. You know, we we define ourselves by our mistakes. We define ourselves by our inadequacies, and it's just not helpful at all. Like we are, like our, you know, that's something that narrative therapy has kind of taught me is that you know a person's a person. A person's not the problem. Like the problem's the problem, and the person's a person. And so, if we externalize the problem for somebody, the work's already started. And you could even look at my books. You know, I have two books out now. Um, on a, I have several books, but two big ones on anxiety. One's called "You One Anxiety Zero. So anxiety is personified. So even before you start reading the book, the therapy started, right? Because we're pulling the anxiety out of the person. And my newest books for teenagers is called Anxiety. I am so done with you. Another personification of anxiety because already we're like trying to separate it from a person's identity. Oh, that's interesting. Can you um, go into a little bit more what narrative therapy is? It sounds like it involves a story somehow. Yeah, exactly. So our life is multi-storied. You know, we, we humans understand stories. They're storytellers. We understand our history and our experiences through the stories that we tell about them. And quite often in someone's life, when they have a problem and they're going to therapy or they're struggling at all emotionally, usually there's a, a, a dominant story that's a problem story in their life. Like, I'm a loser or I messed up or um, I'm a failure or I am I'm anxious, whatever, you know, see how we take these in our identity when we're even when we're talking about problems. And so that story, it's a story of your life. You have a lot of other stories going on, but this story is so dominant that it takes a lot of your attention and mind space and emotions and uh, energy, right? Uh, so, so you're exhausted, but because when that problem is so strong, so there's other problem, there's other stories going on. And so narrative therapy seeks is to break down that story. The dominant story has been constructed by your mind, by your experience, by all this stuff. And we need to kind of deconstruct it, take the energy away from that dominant story, and then start to build a preferred story. These are stories that are already there in a person's life. They already have skills but you want to breathe life into them so they have more access to them, other um, more preferred identities, you know, um, and, and then they, when they're able to step into those with a little bit more hope and faith in themselves, then they start to act in ways that really start to transform their lives. And it's really powerful. So you're rewriting your story, but it's not from fresh. It's kind of like just picking a different book from your shelf, if we want to extend that metaphor. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's like bringing out things that are already there, but it's also exponentially making them more powerful. So you, when you step into your own skills, you obviously become more skilled. You you um, you connect with more people. You're you're doing. You're you are continuing to write. You know our stories are not written, and there's this that would be flat. Like we could really develop them and grow those stories so they're really robust and they really support us in our life. Well, especially with adolescents, since they're developing their their sense of self and who they're going to be that's it's kind of a, actually a good pivotal time to be to be working on that story I guess um in your in your TED talk TEDx talk pardon me you call youth anxiety a pandemic 
What are three ways that today's teens differ from other generations that you think make them more anxious? Well, first of all, the today's teens had uh, a device in their hands with the internet on it <laughs> from maybe like seventh grade or ninth grade, sometimes younger, unfortunately, but they had that device from a much younger age than, than any generation before them. So access to messages, thousands and thousands of messages a day, um, are they, it's coming through. And most of those messages, not all of them, but most of those messages are really letting them know that they are powerless, out of control, or letting them think that. Then this it's not true, but letting them feel powerless, letting them feel inadequate, letting them feel worthless. And so it's really hard to combat that when those messages are coming at you all the time. You really believe them. And even as adults, we believe them. I mean, we're, we're under the same, you know, we get the same messages. We've developed a little bit ahead of time, but we're struggling. We're even struggling. So could you imagine how they feel? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities on the internet to compare yourself with your peers, even if what the peer is putting out is kind of a fabrication of how great their life is. Right, right. You know, we compare it. They, they have their like highlight reel on the on their social media and we compare it to our backstage mess. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> so your new book, Anxiety, I am so done with you. Um, why did you decide to write a book just for teens versus their parents? And what's the main message? Well, I, you know, to be, to be honest, a lot of parents are reading this book and loving it. So it, it, it is written with a voice for teenagers, but there's so much in there for parents to be able to read and understand things a lot, lot better. But but the but the reason why I wrote them because they're my favorite. Like I just you know I've been working with teenagers for twenty years. I love everything about what they stand for, and I see the pain that they're in. You know, their pain is that the mental health problems, anxiety is increasing, depression's increasing, suicides increasing. Like we really have to do something, and it's not. You know, it's it's in our ability to do something. It's just that nobody knows what to do. And so I'm like, I got it. You know, I, I have the answers, but I could sit with eight people a day and share eight families a day or else I could write a book and do videos and try to impact like thousands because this message really is transformative. Right. So what is what is the main message for teenagers? I'm 16 years old and what's kind of the nugget of it? You are so much more incredible than you think you are. You know, there's there's a lot of messages from our, our culture that tells you you're inadequate, but you're not inadequate. You're highly powerful, adaptable, and able. And so let me just explain what anxiety is, because when anxiety has a mystery, it has a lot of power. So so if you understand it, you, you can know how to get rid of it. It's highly treatable. It's not something that you have to have forever. That's a very reassuring message. Um, I, I have looked through the book and it's a very practical, it has emojis in it. Um, and it explains how anxiety works in the mind and body. And it gives exercises and tips for diffusing it. Um, what are some of the tools that teenagers can use to calm themselves and, and to develop their agency? Well, first of all, I think what makes my book stand aside from other books on anxiety is I take the power of anxiety down. 
before I give those skills. And so we deconstruct anxiety by really explaining it. And it's like a total expose. We understand what anxiety is doing and we separate it from a person. And then, because we do know all these skills like deep breathing and spending time outside and being connected and, you know, and, and trying to do something, being creative, you know, all of those skills to help calm ourselves down, we know them, but when the anxiety is so powerful, it's hard for us to, you know, it's hard for them to work well. But once we take that anxiety down, all those things you already know, like breathing, meditating, doing yoga, walking outside, um, spending time with people who are uplifting, getting enough sleep, eating well, um, all of those things, and then rethinking our thoughts, you know, so yes, those are, you know, those are things that we could do to maintain our wellness. But most of the activities in the book is how when you're when anxiety wants you to think one way, or is trying to get you to believe it's lies, how to understand that it's lying and how to circumvent that. That's what most of the exercises do. So it, it kind of um, makes you more self-aware and um, to kind of look at it more objectively. Exactly, exactly. Right, it separates you from the problem a bit. And from that distance, you have a different perspective. In in it's an empowered perspective, but also, yeah, but also it's like a big picture view and it's, you know, it right immediately calms the nervous system down to have that view. Right. So um, what would be a, a good tip that you could give to help teens feel in control, get a sense of control when they feel out of control? I mean, I remember as being an anxious teen and I was in therapy at the time, I would constantly tell my therapist, I feel so out of control. And I, you do address that in your book. Yeah. I mean, out of control is anxiety. Anxiety is out of control, you know? So control issues are anxiety issues. That is the hallmark. But, you know, this is it is like, there's so many, there's so much anxiety wants us to see all the things that we're out of control over, but there's just as many or much, much more things in the world that we do have control over. And so we could pay attention to one or pay attention to the other. And this book helps you figure out how to do that. But, but, you know, things happen to us, but we're not passive recipients of this life. You know, we respond. And what's really important is, first of all, we have a hundred percent of control over our response and that response. So something happens to us and then we could respond to it. That means how we think about it, what we do next, how we act, um, the meaning we make, the story we take from that. All of that is 100% in our control. And that response, which we call personal agency, you mentioned it earlier, that response means more to your happiness and your mood and your relationships and your um, self-view than anything that happens to you. Right? This is the most important thing for your emotional wellness is your response. And you have 100% of control over that. So there's so many thought leaders out there saying just relax, you know, give up your control, like, you know, let go, um, surrender. And that's freaky for someone who's got anxiety. They do not want to, they, they, they can't even comprehend that. It's so dangerous. It feels dangerous. But, um, and so I give another option. It, actually, it's the only option. It's just explained differently so that they could take it in is that you have a hundred percent of control. So don't worry about the things you have no control over. They don't matter as much as the things that you do have control over. Those matter more. 
maybe one important message also is even if you feel panicky, you can even control how you react to your feeling out of control in the sense that you can say, yes, I'm panicking right now, but it doesn't define me and I will calm down in a while and I'll keep moving forward. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I give people the exact script. Thanks, amygdala. Because the amygdala is setting off that fear response. And if you needed it, that'd be really cool. So actually we say that, you know, so when they're feeling anxious, instead of being afraid of it, because if you're afraid of it, it perpetuates it. And so I give people the language. Thanks, amygdala. If I needed you, if I needed this adrenaline, it'd be really awesome. But I don't need it right now. You know, like we start with the gratitude. Like, thanks, thanks, amygdala. If I needed this, this would be really great, but I don't really need it. I'm safe right now. And I'm going to just go over here and do that. I really break down for people exactly what they need to stop that adrenaline in their brain and release the GABA hormone. The GABA hormones puts their brakes on the adrenaline. And I get a lot of ways that people can do that. So that brings us to the brain, because for anyone that doesn't know, the amygdala is a part of the brain that I gather um, puts out the fight or flight response. Is that correct? Okay. Yes. What are daily practices teens can use to rewire their brain for happiness, as you put it? What does that mean? Uh, well, that means that understanding what is the most important for um, for people with happiness. And we go to the research because there's been tons of research about in, for happy cultures or cultures who live longer. Usually people who are happy live longer. And so the research shows us what is in our control and what we could do. And so that's like being in. So the, the second or the end of the book or the last third of the book, I really spent a lot of time showing people all the things they could do to improve their emotional wellness. And I mentioned it before, like getting enough sleep, being around happy people, having a good sense of purpose, getting a routine to your day, movement, you know, those kind of things, mindset, all of those things are, are incredibly important, but they're things that we have a hundred percent of control over. So that's the really exciting part. Right. So are you referring to neuroplasticity or just, I think we're getting a little into the science here, but is there a way that you can explain how it actually does kind of change your brain to, to do things, to do one thing versus another? Yeah. I mean, we are, we are, our brains are highly adaptable. I mean, that's mentally, emotionally, but even like physically, even the, the hormones shift and change and, you know, you know, we think about like the nerve pathways or the pathways and, you know, when you have the same emotion over and over again, your brain gets used to that. And in then, so it's easy. It's kind of easy to stay along that path, but you can reroute that. And with some change of habit or repetition, you could change the route and then it's easier to, um, to stay in a better place. But these happy people aren't just lucky. Like they, they generate their own happiness. They do things to bring that happiness and maintain it in their life and in their day. And so that's really important when people are sad or anxious, they really think that, um, that I'm just different. This is the biggest problem in mental health issues is that we feel different. And when you feel different, it's devastating to the psyche. And so that's the biggest message I want to get out there we are, we do have neuroplasticity. There's some things that stop that, that kind of create rigidity, right? Fear kind of creates a rigidness. 
um, you know, not being stressed and not eating well or being in a place that has a lot of toxic people, all those, all that kind of stress creates like a rigidness and laughter creates plasticity. Plasticity means you could change. Um, spending time outside creates plasticity. Uh, being with happy people creates plasticity, which means you could, it's easier to change those pathways when we have that more plasticity. It's a hard word to say. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like learning. Basically, I know that, for example, when you're building up a muscle, um, that the repetition of that kind of does change, I guess, the way your muscle is wired, the brain is wired. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they talk about that in school, like if, if a kid's stressed out or they didn't eat or something like that, like they're not going to they're not going to take in this stuff for school. They're not going to do as well in academically. And that's for all of us for all time, you know, that the, the same thing. If we're stressed, we're not going to take in stuff or be open or have access to our skills. You know, we might just go to those survival. And those are like the old like freeze and pull away and those kind of things, which really don't help us at all actually makes us worse. Right. So um, in your practice, have you seen the COVID pandemic impacting teens anxiety and how can they manage anxiety about that? Cause that's real. Yeah. Um, well, it's a, it's a, right. This is a context for anxiety. So it's important to know that, you know, if, if you're having anxiety, it's not because something's wrong with you. There's a context for anxiety in right now with this pandemic, of course, and the isolation is the worst. I mean, uh, it just depends on where you are, but there's different pockets of the world where the, um, you know, there's different pockets of the world where kids are still getting together, like nothing happened. And then there's some that there's a lot of isolation, regardless, they have less activities that they're doing. And so they are experiencing more isolation than they were before. And teens were isolated before, So it's really devastating. You know, they feel lonely. They feel like nobody likes them. They might feel anxious. They're feeling depressed um, and a bit lost. And so, you know, we have to give them some routine. We have to give them a sense of purpose and some connection and some novelty. Like we need a little bit of novelty in our day. And that's what's, you know, now we're not sheltering place anymore. I mean, it depends on when this is, when you're listening to this, what is going on, because I think things are going to continue to change. But you know, trying to get, even if you are sheltering in place, you could get some novelty in your life. And that would be really important. Some movement, some novelty, a routine, and um, a sense of purpose are all incredibly important. So let's look at how adults can help their kids. Um, You often said there are five things that anxious people, um, in this case, teenagers would like their loved ones to know about living with anxiety and panic. So what are those five things? Well, how hard they're trying. You know, they really want someone to notice how hard they're trying. And, um, and so that's the number one. I mean, that could, that could, it's more important than the other ones. And then they want them to know that um, how, how hard it is, right? So how hard it is, and then how hard they're trying. Um, So people, kids want you to know um, that they need that that when they're frustrated, they're frustrated the anxiety, not you. 
you know, they're frustrated at their feelings, not you. So when, so a lot of times kids argue back, you know, you're saying the right things that's going to really help them. And they're like, that doesn't work. You know, um, it does work. And they're taking that in, even though their, their anxiety is yelling at you. Yeah. So those are, so, so those are the main ones. They want you to know that you're there, like that, that they need you. Even though they may be pushing you away, they, they do need you to be supportive. They need you and they're taking that in, what you're saying. They're taking it in, definitely. I think you said one of the five things was um, distraction is good. Yeah, distraction is good. Like, so it's good to help to, um, you know, to remind, to, to get involved in that distraction with them. You know, a lot of times people think that distraction is like not facing it or something like that. But if you think about human history, distraction has been the thing that's helped us cope the most with everything. You know, I mean, how would we get through the horror of, of um, you know, the history of humanity without some kind of some kind of distraction helping us cope or some kind of purpose or movement? You know, if we stayed stuck, that's where we suffer. So what are some of the important things that parents can actively do to help their kids feel less anxious and generally uh, tap into their agency instead of kind of getting stuck in their sense of fear? Well, I think if we have confidence for them, then they'll have confidence in themselves. So it's really important for us to express that we know that it's temporary and that they could get through this and we're not going to leave them like this. And that we know that they could do it. We know that they have the skills. So it's like us believing in their agency is going to be contagious to them. And also pointing out to them, there's probably lots of stories in their life where they overcame something hard remind them through those stories, like tell them those stories again, be like, you remember that time you did this? That's why I know you could do it. And that's going to really like help embody that for them, like help them and be embodied in that personal agency. Yeah. Um, so what can schools do to help Im- improve or dispel, you know, this culture of anxiety? Yeah. I mean, I think that teachers need to understand it a little bit more, just like parents need to understand it. That's why, you know, I, I, one of the first reviews on my book came through because it just came out last week as the time we're recording this. And um, one of the first reviews was an English teacher and a parent of teenager. So he was like, you know, the teachers need to read this book. Parents need to read this book. Teens need to read this book because if teachers understood it, they would know how to respond. And then I always think that schools should have certain teachers or adults that have like a sign on their door where kids know that they're like friendly to be talked to. Right. Because there's a lot of kids that fall. Sometimes they know the counselors and are spending a lot of time with the counselors. But there's some kids that fall through the cracks at school that nobody notices that they're not doing okay. And I've had a lot of clients be like, I don't know who to go to at school. So I'm like, the teach some teachers are uncomfortable with that, but the teachers who are comfortable with kids coming to them, I want them to have like a sign on their door. So it's just an extra sign for kids who are already so self-conscious about needing anybody else to know that they are welcome and that, 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 that this teacher encourages them to talk. And then that teacher could filter all that through um, the counselor. Also, I really think staff should be assigned kids like, you know, each staff member should have a certain number of kids that they kind of keep an eye on just to make sure that nobody's falling through the cracks. 
Right. One thing that we are seeing at schools, though, and it's very well-meaning, is this kind of mental health awareness where they're kind of noticing the kids that are struggling and saying, like, well, let's vector them to mental health so they can get their diagnosis and possibly their drugs. So um, how would you react to that? Like, it sounds like you would suggest that they do something else first. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know if that's the same thing I'm talking about is, is like noticing kids are going to fall through the cracks who's no one's noticing, you know, maybe their parents are, um, don't know what's happening, or maybe their parents are dealing with something else, or there's a whole family crisis. And so it'd be nice if there's other adults checking on some kids and seeing if they're okay, if they need kind of a, an ear, someone to talk to. Most things could be solved just by having someone who believes in you, who you could talk to, who you could understand, who could help you understand what's going on and that, and how to, you know, get better. And so most things could be helped with that. But, um, but, and then there's some, you know, crises going on that you need ongoing care. And if there, if there's a kid with a family in crisis and the school knows about it, they could provide some support. And that would be really an important piece. So I, the schools where I am aren't, I don't, I'm not sure the, the method that you're talking about. So they try to pick out kids who need mental health process, pro, help, and then they send them to a clinic or something and get medicine. That does not happening locally where I am. So I'm, I didn't know of that um, kind of path. But the intention might be just, just wanting those kids, knowing that if you're struggling and you talk to somebody, it could help or talk to somebody who knows how to help you, that would be a good process. So I, you know, I'm not sure. I'm sure there's a lot of mental health practitioners who are doing some damage by diagnosing people or saying, you know, this is something that you have forever and you just have to deal with it. Like those kind of things, I don't think help anybody, but that is still being said <laughs> to people of all ages. That's unfortunate, but hopefully we're just getting that message out there that, you know, if you Google anxiety, you'll find all over the place. Anxiety is highly treatable, highly treatable. And so, but there's still, you know, I still have clients who, before they've come to me, you know, had a panic attack, went to the emergency room and had a nurse in the emergency room tell them, this is anxiety, this is something you'll have forever and you just have to learn to manage it. They're freaking out. It just freaks them out. Yeah, especially if it's especially if it's their first panic attack and they might never have another one. So to tell someone. Exactly. It's a bad sign, you know. Um, I, th I think it's not uncommon for sometimes for people to have a panic attack in their life and then it's not something that is is chronic. It just does happen periodically, maybe if you're under stress or something. Right, right. There's, you know, there's often a perfect storm that may cause like a panic attack. You know, it could be stress in your life and something happens and then someone's being mean at the same time, like all these things and you're hungry that day and it's really hot or something. Like there is a perfect storm of stuff that brings on a panic attack. And then how you think about that panic attack will matter. And it, if it continues and turns into anxiety, it could happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. This is the thing is that it's not just people who are wired that way or anxious. Anybody could get hooked because it feels so scary. Mm -hmm. And how you decide on the meaning, remember it's your agency, how you think about something matters and how long you're going to suffer. And so the sooner I could get to those people and explain it to them, the sooner they're relieved. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it, it sounds like it. It makes it makes sense to me. Um, is there any other thought that you'd like to share about teenagers and anxiety? Oh, wow. I could probably talk about it for days. But uh, yeah, I mean, just get the book. Anxiety, I'm so done with you. If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're a teenager, get this book. There's write-in sections. So every teen needs their own. And you know, maybe the parents could get the um, e-version so that they could at least read it. But it's a I think it has the potential to really change how we respond to this problem, this mental health crisis that we're dealing with, because it is, we can respond. I mean, schools all the time are like, what do we do with these kids? What do we do with these kids? I have the answer and I put them in a book for you. (laughs) Our guest has been psychotherapist Jody Amen, LCSW. You can visit her website at jodyamen.com, J-O-D-I-A-M-A-N.com, where you can also get her new book. I'm Miranda Spencer, and this has been Mad in the Family. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.